Over 50 years after the Beatles broke up, they've returned to the UK pop charts with the song Now and Then, their first chart-topping single since 1969, their 18th number one in total, and they've just reached the top 10 in the US. With a vocal by John Lennon extracted and reconstructed with remarkable clarity from a low-fidelity late 70s cassette demo recording and a production overseen by Paul with new contributions by Ringo and at least one track by George from the mid-90s. The song, like so many Beatles recordings, is a triumph of cutting-edge technology. Unfortunately, that technology, and how it was used, has been widely misreported and misunderstood. Today, to discuss this production, I'm joined by Beatles scholar Kenneth Womack, professor of English at Monmouth University, and author of numerous books, including the new biography of the ultimate Beatles insider, Mal Evans and Jonathan Priedis, host of the podcast Ranking the Beatles, as well as a talented multi-instrumentalist who, with his band The Walrus, has been performing faithful Beatle covers for years. So, guys, this, this is an extraordinary thing. Well, it absolutely is. It's an incredible moment. Whether you're talking about the U.S. or the U.K., we have displaced uh, those last number ones, whether it be... Long and Winding Road or Ballad of John and Yoko. It's really quite a remarkable moment. And uh, I'm glad that folks like you are here to explain the technology because, as you said, it is so often misunderstood and misreported. It almost feels kind of like time travel because it reminds me a lot of kind of the buzz and conversation that we were having about the Beatles in 95 when the anthology came out. And it was the first new music from the band since they broke up and kind of that initial, you know, new generation buzz it kind of feels very similar to that. Only now I'm now I'm 41 instead of you know 15. And Apple only announced this a very short time before release, and it's already number one. It's it's only been out two weeks, not even two weeks, as we record this. Jonathan's right. We we remember the anthology period, but the industry is not the same as it was in the 1990s. I think it's remade itself a couple of times since then. Apple has been. I think really shrewd in front-loading this whole experience for us, you know, to get as many streams and as many physical units sold as possible during this period to make a real splash. I think the speed of the campaign really speaks to the speed of the news cycle now versus what it was in 95, where in 95 you would, you know, you could market something and and build buzz for it for weeks if not months before it came out, whereas nowadays the news cycle is basically 48 to 72 hours. So announcing it a week beforehand, as opposed to dragging it out, I think was a really a smart way to kind of maximize the largest bang for the buck in terms of exposure and not have people just kind of forget about it because something new came down the pipeline. Just a bit of quick background. As most Beatles fans know, while working on Free as a Bird and Real Love for Anthology back in the mid-90s, 
Paul, George, and Ringo initially attempted to produce an arrangement for Now and Then, but abandoned it after only a little bit of recording. One issue was a buzz on the tape that couldn't be removed at the time. Fast forward 25 years, and while working on Get Back, Peter Jackson's people developed a system called MAL, Machine Automated Learning, that could separate out voices and instruments for better control over the mix. For now and then, MAL became the key that allowed the song to be completed. Here's John's original demo, Buzz and All. And here's the vocal Mal was able to extract. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. And this is a big part of what Apple is using now on Beatles releases moving forward. Right. Well, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be at uh, the Revolver pre-screening a few years back, and it was it was interesting to watch Giles Martin talk about these newfangled Beatles releases, beginning with Revolver and certainly moving into the future that we would be seeing, and that, um, you know, in this case, he was quite literally dropping the file into a Dropbox to the folks in New Zealand, the Wizards at Wingnut, so that they could do their work using the machine-assisted language in disaggregating those sounds. I think it's remarkable, and, and wow, it bodes so well, not just for, for Beatles songs and demos and popular music, but all sorts of applications. Right. Jonathan said something, I, I think, on Twitter the other day about how this is going to change production. Yeah, one of the things I was kind of thinking about with that, there's so many legacy artists that I think have recordings sitting around in their vault or in their you know sock drawer that are, you know, a quarter inch tape of them live at some venue in 1967 that is okay quality, but not necessarily releasable. Whenever the Mal software is not quite so Apple proprietary, I think this kind of opens up these catalog releases for these artists that have been sitting on stuff that hasn't necessarily been releasable quality where you can take a live recording of, you know, I don't know, you can say, well, I have a monkey's koozie in front of me. You can say the monkeys in Japan in 1968, that audio has voiceover from television all over it. You could remove that voiceover and have an amazing sounding live album that didn't exist before. And I think that's something that's going to change everything. Mal is the latest iteration of a type of system that originated with Spleter, which was released back in 2019 by a streaming service called Deezer. Spleter is open source, meaning anyone can use it and anyone can train it as opposed to MAL, which is proprietary for now. Peter Jackson will only allow its use on Beatles projects. The essence of these tools, though, is in teaching the software to identify and isolate instruments and voices. You feed it many, many examples as a data set, and it learns what a guitar or a piano or a voice sounds like. Initially, the thought was that DJs and mashup artists could use this tech to remove vocals from songs but it's also been suggested for the purpose Jonathan is describing. And I use the open source version a lot for this podcast. The difference with Mal is that it was trained specifically on Beatles sounds and voices, so it can be used in a very focused surgical way. And it appears to be much more sophisticated. For instance, if you have the new 1962-66 to compilation, 
The strings on Yesterday are now in stereo, where they were originally recorded on a single track in mono. That and the rest of the mixes on that compilation were made using the MAL system. I think one of the kind of misconceptions with the idea of this, of, of, of AI assistance with this song, is the idea of generative AI versus machine-assisted learning. Like you were saying, the MAL software is built to recognize the qualities of their individual voices, their instruments, etc. Generative AI is, those are like the YouTube tracks where you get Paul McCartney singing Bohemian Rhapsody or some random weird thing that's created by a machine. And I believe Apple, when they say nothing has been generated on this track, like you're hearing what's actually been sang and performed by the four Beatles. And, and fundamentally, that's the difference right there. A lot of the AI that's available to, to folks is really a kind of a novelty act, right? And it, it just has a completely different function than the way we're describing machine learning, which is, is about extraction and preservation. One thing I thought about the first time I listened to this song was that this project is completely consistent with Paul's role in the 60s, where he was producing within the band and where he was a real driving force from at least 1967 onward. Now, obviously, had John and George lived, they would have continued to develop as people and as artists. But knowing what we know, could we picture John or George initiating a project like this? It's certainly hard to imagine that. You know, I mean, we know that George was involved with the anthology project, you know, for uh, financial means. My understanding is he's glad that he did. It's hard to imagine John Lennon with his kind of rage for authenticity and the talk he would share about rock and roll and, you know, his pure interest in, in that kind of groove. It's hard to imagine that this would appeal to him. But, you know, of course, what we've all lost and what he lost was the ability to evolve, you know, over four decades of rapid technological shift that would have been unrecognizable to him in 1980. So I hesitate even to make any kind of guess since we cannot know. I mean, look at Bowie, right? Of course, we know that David Bowie experiment and experimentation were key aspects of what he did. And he took to technology like wildfire. I was thinking about this similarly. And I think using Bowie is a great comparison because I feel like John would have enjoyed the fruits of the technology, but would not want to have any involvement in figuring out how it works. Kind of in the same way he would go, you know, George Martin, you can fix these two takes of Strawberry Fields forever and make it into one cohesive track. It's the same guy that loved artificial double tracking because it was less work, you know? I, I could see him in some way thinking, well, you know, there is a benefit to this. How heavily he would rely on it, I, that I don't know. I, I, like you, I don't think George necessarily would have done it. But John's kind of a wild card for me like that because I think he's into new technology and kind of the allure of the gadget and the unknown. So I feel like I could maybe see him dipping a toe into this kind of world a little bit. Oh, I like that. And, and I, I think you're right in that sense, because he loved, he loved the shortcut, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. remember making double fantasy, you know, let's do it in two weeks and then I'm out. <laughs> right. uh, you know, if <laughs> yeah. technology could make it one week or three days, and I still get my result and, you know, express myself in my songs, perhaps that would have been amenable to him. I don't want to stray too much into this speculative territory because obviously we're concerned with production and how songs are created and, to the best of our ability, describing how things were done in the studio. 
And the foundation of that in this case is Paul getting in there and arranging things. And I guess where I want to start with that is with the original demo. A lot of listeners know that there was a rough bridge section in John's demo, which Paul removed here. One fan, however, in just a matter of days, very quick work, has already reinserted that section into the song, wrapping the new arrangement around it. Well, you know, when you when you talk about that bridge, my students the other night in class, you know, we talked about there's about to be a Beatles number one. They know this, of course. And we flipped on the old version just so they could hear it. And one student said, wow, I like that better. It sounds more authentic. <laughs> wow. Wow. It does have its own charm. You know, the original, you know, I'm going all the way back to the original demo. That middle section, really, it does have to do... Well, one was structure. It also places it very much as a late 1970s song, right? It is the most, I'm not saying it's scandalous, but it's it's part of what he's expressing. You know, I don't want to lose you, lose you, or abuse you. It is edgy. So it might have been problematic in that way. I'm wondering, do either of you know if when they were dealing with it in, in the mid-1990s, was it already gone or was it still considered to be part of, of the song structure? There's an image of the lyric sheet from the 90s recording session floating around and that bridge is still there. So it seems to be a later omission, but I don't think anybody has confirmed it either way yet. You know, really, that's a defining point. You know, what was the editorial thinking behind the removal of that section? In fact, that section lends itself to, it actually breaks apart a lot of the myth-making, you know, that it's a message from John to Paul, and it's about this supposed last words that were said to Paul, you know, via Carl Perkins, who is the only source I can find. And I'm not saying he's not credible, but I would love it if I could find one single source where, where Paul or Linda, you know, confirmed that, and I can't find that. So it allows all sorts of myth-making to take place. The lose you or abuse you starts to sound like, you know, a, a rough, romantic, you know, sensual kind of issue taking place that doesn't, doesn't merge as well with a lot of this myth-making that we're getting right now. I, so I, I, I think that that middle section is, it's such a crucial point, and I'm glad you bring it up. That middle section, how do you keep that in if you want to be part of this mythos? As far as the lyrical part of it, I don't know, as, as a songwriter, you know, and not to even attempt to put myself, you know, in, in the same conversation of like how I write songs versus how John Lennon or Paul McCartney write songs. But just in my own practice, you know, when you're fishing for ideas for a song and you're working on a demo, you're kind of throwing all kinds of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And are there other, I know there's, you know, 20 versions of, of Real Love and Free as a Bird. How many more versions of Now and Then do we know of? 
No, this is this is the only one. Yeah, you are going down the right, I think, the right path here. I think this is the only one. But, you know, and this may be the biggest crux of all, and immediately it's what I was thinking of, and that is the issue of how John Lennon wrote songs, right? I mean, John Lennon had developed a pretty clear procedure over his last 12 years of life, maybe even longer, where he would write multiple pieces and graft different songs onto the others. You know, just like starting over is four different songs. So, and real love is what three? It, something like that. It was real yeah. life and real love and girls and boys. Yeah, that's right. You know, so all of it is going to be a crude approximation of how he worked anyway. And and like you just yeah. said, Jonathan, this was like that first songwriterly stab where you're seeing how some of the words sound when you sing them with a piano. Yeah, you know, the demo, you know, feels like he's got, like you're saying, he's got one section. And he's realizing it flows nicely in this other section that I've been working on. Maybe they are not related lyrically, but we'll we'll cross that bridge later because I've got plenty of time to work on this song. Yes, I don't know. I don't know what the right path. I mean, I, I think if I were making the decision at the end of the day, I think taking the bridge out is the right idea. If they were going to leave it in in some kind of approximation to the way it exists on the demo, I'd have maybe made that melody itself the slide solo. Because I think that is a strong melody over those chords. But vo- lyrically, I don't think it, I think it was right to not try to expand on that part personally. One thing I've seen people talk about is how the magic is when they were all in the same room contributing. And we don't have that here for obvious reasons. But there are lots of cases where only two or three Beatles were playing on a track, even when they were together. Yesterday is a great example, just Paul. But there's Mother Nature's Son, lots of stuff on the White Album, and their previous number one single, The Ballad of John and Yoko, was just John and Paul. I was thinking about this earlier. I I was in a kind of a discussion on Facebook about what kind of constitutes, I guess, an authentic Beatles release, which I found really interesting because there's the idea that, you know, after Let It Be, nothing exists because, you know, if they didn't care to do it together and put it out during that time, it doesn't really count. But like we were saying, you know, not everything was done together. Not every, whether it's, you know, only certain people on certain songs. You know, John didn't play on a George Harrison song from, what, 1966 onward, maybe? Or, you know, George being kind of frozen out of the tracklist selection for the White Album. And one of his songs is one of the ones that gets shelved. Things like that kind of happened all throughout their career. So... I, I think, you know, there's definitely a, a specific magic when the four of them are playing together that, like you're saying, for circumstances, we don't have that. But there is a really close approximation. And I think this is kind of that. And the blend of the voices and also I think the emotional connection between those guys are all part of that magic. And just because you don't maybe have all four ingredients even if you have three or two, it's still pretty fantastic. All right, so let's take that as our cue to look at some of the individual tracks. Let's start with the guitars, and George is in here somewhere on rhythm guitar. I think he's playing a rhythm guitar. There's definitely two specific styles of, of rhythm playing throughout, like on acoustic. And then there's an electric rhythm track that comes in in the second verse that my gut tells me is George, because it's kind of Wilbury-esque, and it's kind of strumming patterns it's kind of a focused moment when you hear it and that kind of makes me think that that's a george thing and it's an unexpected rhythm part 
for this kind of song. Like it's not jaunty, but it's a bit more up tempo for something that's just kind of a very straightforward rhythmic feel. But it then lets Ringo kind of open up with what he plays too. And obviously Ringo's on drums. And I thought his drums, compared to Free as a Bird and Real Love, I think his drums sound really good here. I like the performance a lot. It, it feels more like Ringo because he's not, it's not five overdub tracks of, you know, this is the hi-hat track and this is the snare drum and this is the tom. It's actually a performance. It is, and this is me being kind of nitpicky, it is a bit boomy and kind of loud in its... But it's, it's also, I think, mixed for a modern, younger audience. I think this is mixed for people who are listening on their phones, you know, on iOS devices for that listening experience. I'm right with you. And I would even add this other wrinkle for why, you know, I love Ringo. I think he's the greatest drummer in rock history. These are not great showcases for him because... As Ringo said, he likes to be there at the beginning when they're starting a track and to be part of it and craft it. I mean, that's how you get the magic of come together, right? He just simply doesn't have that option with these three songs. They exist and they have all sorts of constraints with them about what you can do. And and so that's kind of, I agree with you, that's why it's kind of boomy, right? As far as the rest of the arrangement goes, Paul's on everything else. Piano, rhythm guitar... The bass, of course. And even some electric guitar. Just building this production. And as I was looking at this, I thought of something that Chris Thomas told me last time I interviewed him. He was apprenticing with George Martin in 68, 69, 70, and he told me he learned more about how to produce from watching Paul than he did working with George Martin, just based on how Paul approached recording and how he constructed an arrangement. And, and I think that's very much on display here. This is a very polished, thought-out Paul McCartney production, even down to the string arrangement, which Paul worked on with Giles and Ben Foster. I love the orchestration. I think it it's beatly, right? I mean, yeah. particularly the I mean the best part is how it closes. I I that's that's a song I don't quit early. Mm. It it ends really well. As far as the the strings go, I, I think I think it's it's a beautiful arrangement. You know, it's it's interesting because it's it's not overly beatly. Like it doesn't fall into that kind of pastiche of like here's all the tricks of the Beatles trade. You know, for a string section. But it definitely calls back to thing like it definitely feels a touch like I'm the walrus in places. It has that kind of George Martin stateliness, but it also feels kind of fresh.
It's interesting what you say about pastiche because moving to the backing vocals, we have elements that could very easily have crossed that line, literally taking pieces from other songs, but the way it's done here actually makes now and then part mashup. Giles took backing vocals from Eleanor Rigby, Here, There, and Everywhere, and Because. And when I first heard the song, the only one that really stood out was Because, since those harmonies are so distinctive. I noticed immediately was because in the bridge section there was one particular one where I was like oh that's because the others I think are all low enough in the mix to where it just sounds like the Beatles doing backing vocals yeah um and it's it's done in a very kind of subtle way it doesn't feel gimmicky at any point which I think is what makes it work I feel like people were nervous about the idea of pastiche being something that could tank the song or make it seem you know try hard or cheesy but I think they did it, you know, just right. I think it's great. I do too, because it feels more like an Easter egg for the knowing mm-hmm. listener as opposed to, you know, Danger Mouse or whatever. And I like Danger Mouse. I'm not being critical. That's just a different style. It felt more like an Easter egg. And, and I picked up on the because, but I did not pick up on any of the other sections that you isolated, Jason. The Eleanor Rigby is the one to me that's that's really, I mean, he's looped and extended these very skillfully. And then you have the slide guitar, which is the best part of the song. I mean, it it goes to another place with those slide sections. I don't mean anything critical about this. It, it just reminded me of Ordinary World by Duran Duran. It had this kind of spacishness. It was beautiful. That's a good call on uh, Ordinary World. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, do you hear it too? I mean, it has that kind mm-hmm. of that open-endedness. And it. I, I read that somebody describing it as a kind of... Uh, psychedelic rock song and i think that's the only way you can say that because of the slide section you know it it is kind of it's even more space rock you know it like something dave gilmore would do it's just spectacular One thing I was thinking about that it kind of it was a thought I had really early on in the song. I remember reading there was some buzz about Penn Jillette when he let out that he'd heard the song supposedly and mentioned that they had AI'd Paul's voice to sound like younger Paul. Right. And when we hit the chorus and it's definitely not younger Paul and it's current day Paul, I was so happy. You know, I know we talked a lot about kind of the intent of the song and what it's about and the emotional attachment that it that it has and how that comes about, but it adds real weight to the idea of now and then and the cycle of life and the fragility of life and the kind of enduring relationship and friendship of these guys 
and it it made it much more emotional to hear it like that's Paul he's there he is like that's real like yeah. that really hit me the absolute right thing to do i like seeing paul hearing paul wearing his age proudly and and it does it makes so much sense and it actually just makes it even more heartbreaking you know for him to sing along with 37 36 year old john lennon you know right this is something that goes beyond performance or even entertainment this is someone in his lived experience you know that's the that's the beauty of their story right i mean i say it at the beginning of every class you're going to want to say they're geniuses and and i guess there are moments where they're playing in that vintage but you know these are real people and this is a real story and it it's about friendship and losing that friendship and it's heartbreaking it's like real life it hurts you know and and that's the thing about the beatles songs they understood sadness loneliness you know whatever we want to say about this this new track this old track this new track it fits inside that mold very very well a hundred percent you know i feel like paul's gotten some stick for talking about doing this for years and the human element of this tends to get lost in that we all see them as Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr, like these massive larger than life people who at the end of the day are just as human as any of us. And I feel like the emotional quest of completing this for Paul, for whatever reason it is, none of us honestly know. But it's obviously meant a lot to him because this has been in the back of his head for the better part of 30 years. Thinking about this song and what it's going to take to finish it, I would almost guarantee you he knew every part he was going to play the moment they decided to pick this back up. Like once he knew it was doable, I would guarantee you he knew the bass part. He'd thought about the slide part. The string arrangement was already in his head. He's been sitting on this for years because it means something to him to finish it that adds to the whole, like you said, the whole story of this band. It gives it a really beautiful footnote. If indeed this is the last new thing that we get from this combination of human beings, that's a beautiful way to go out, I think. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Big thanks to my guests, Ken Womack and Jonathan Priedis. You can find Ken on the Everything Fab Four podcast and look for his book on Mal Evans entitled Living the Beatles Legend. And check out Jonathan's podcast, Ranking the Beatles, which he hosts with his lovely wife, Julia. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at PT Beatles and on Instagram and Facebook as Producing the Beatles. For more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit the website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>